So I find these kinds of behaviors fascinating. Some of it is consumer behavior and what you and I see, who hosts this web page, et cetera. But some of it's more subtle. And that's where I want to go to this week is in the almost invisible infrastructure of, of the internet, in the bit that makes it work as distinct from the bits that you and I use, is that also a monopoly? Is that also deeply, deeply centralized? Or is it a more open market? Now, why is this important is a really good question. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by AP Nick discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, we're talking to Jeff Houston from AP Nick Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff, welcome back. Why, thank you. What have you got for us this week? What have I got for you this time? It's perhaps a sign of our times, but I've been kind of fascinated with the concept of digital monopolies. Mm. Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and we used to also say Meta, but now it doesn't seem like they're part of that club. Well, no, Mastodon, but that's a story that's yet to work its way through. Twitter, you know, whatever. But there's something kind of interesting about these, which I think must fascinate anyone who's an amateur student. There's something fascinating about this, which kind of, I suppose, intrigues anyone who is an amateur, that's a code word for completely unqualified economist or economic historian such as myself. And that is that these new digital monopolies don't obey the old rules. US Steel, in its heyday, employed hundreds of thousands of people. They had sort of this command of labor, of capital, of resources. And that's what made it so difficult to compete with. Yeah. So a small-scale village steel mill just never stood a chance against this kind of nationalization of all the others under the guise of US right, steel. But they also had concrete assets in the ground and they had investment capital and a bunch of cost side which went to certain things. It's not exactly the same in the digital domain. Well, that's the thing. You kind of look at this and go, workforce of Google? Well, it's a big company, but it doesn't employ a million people. Capital? Well, it has capital, but so do a bunch of others. What's behind that monopoly and what entrenches it? What makes it unassailable? And that's kind of a fascinating question because if you understood that and understood it well, perhaps you might understand its vulnerabilities. And if the current sort of theme of much of, of the thoughts about the internet is, oh my God, it's dominated by a small number of folk. We're living inside a new form of digital serfdom. How do we dismantle these monopolists? Well, if we don't understand what makes them so central, what made them so big, it's very hard to understand exactly why and how they might be addressed to create a more balanced structure. So this is the how did we get here question. How did we arrive at this point where these monopolies exist? Well, that's one of the questions, but I actually don't want to go down that part too much at the moment. What I'd like to understand is where is this monopoly expressed and how do we see it? 
because in some ways, some of this stuff is just blindingly obvious. 30, 35% of digital advertising uh, is done by Google Ads, for example. That's a smaller number than I expected. Yeah, Amazon's just growing every week. But it's still, if you think about the hundreds, thousands of newspapers who used to share advertising revenue even 30 years ago, it's a frighteningly scary big share of a very, very big global market. Oh, it's certainly a dominant player. So even if it's less than I'd imagined, that is a massive component of centrality right there. You're right. It's 85% of Google's, Google's income, so it makes a difference. Apple. Now, I wouldn't call them a monopolist because in some ways, most of the handsets are Android-based rather than Apple's iPhone, but nevertheless, big player. What's its edge? What made it so big? Again, such a good question because I make a mobile phone is hardly an exclusive claim. Yet nevertheless, they command a premium product with massive world reach, and it's highly lucrative. And in some ways, everyone else has been unable to really engage them in the competition in their chosen market. So I find these kinds of behaviors fascinating. Some of it is consumer behavior and what you and I see, who hosts this web page, etc. But some of it's more subtle, and that's where I want to go to this week, is in the almost invisible infrastructure of the internet, in the bit that makes it work as distinct from the bits that you and I use, is that also a monopoly? Is that also deeply, deeply centralized? Or is it a more open market? Now, why is this important is a really good question. And then how do we know it's being centralized or not? So let's reel it back and, so I suppose, clarify why I'm thinking about this particular topic of infrastructure monopoly, and then we'll talk about why it's important. The bit that I'm trying to look at is the domain name system. I've said in the past, and I'll say it again, we completely blew up IP addresses. Oops. Somewhere between running out of V4 addresses and the tediously slow process of shifting over to V6, we've kind of lost address coherency. But it hasn't actually interfered with operating a network at scale. I mean, the global internet's working, even if we say address is broken, right? Well, that's the thing. We busted the address plan. Everyone's behind NATs. There is V6, but it doesn't glue the internet together. So what is the internet? And the answer really is, it's a common namespace. It's a convention that you and I can meet in this video recording because we both type basically the same DNS name into our browsers and yay, presto, there you are and here I am and we're talking because of the DNS. But that introduces the potential that if the centrality of players in provision of DNS came to the fore, that service is extremely dependent on those players doing the right thing. Right. It's kind of this other way of saying, is the internet already captured? Because if the only thing holding it together is the DNS, and the DNS is only controlled by a handful of players, then, oops, something has quietly happened, which is, I think, relatively unhealthy. So if we look casually at the DNS and you come at it from a consumer perspective, it's hard to believe it has a high degree of capture because there's 250 economies and there's somewhere around 3,000 
global top-level domains, GTLDs. And that sounds like a fiercely competitive space. If I don't like something that's happening in .com, I can go to .biz. If I don't like something that's happening in .com, maybe the people are offering service in .de. So first glance, casual consumer, how can this be a captured space? Oh, George. Oh, um, I suppose I've had the misfortune to live through a lot of this. And I have to reel this back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, because at the time we were young and we were idealistic, and in particular, John Postel, the guy who was actually doing this whole names and number thing, was incredibly idealistic. And when we started talking about naming machines on the internet, or maybe it was the ARPANET at the time, who knows, we actually came up with what we called a domain name system, a hierarchy of names, www.apnic.net. This is three names and they're in a particular order, and the hierarchy is expressed backwards. It's actually right to left, not left to right. APNIC is under net. Oh, there was such a debate inside the UK <laughs> academic community about why we were still using uk.ac.ucl on our email addresses. Man, that was a time. Anyway, please continue. But anyway, yes, we type in numbers with the largest digit first, not last. But nevertheless, domain names are backwards. And the backward top level names, the ones at the end, were .com, .net, .org, .gov, .edu, and .mil. You'll notice there's no country code there. It was just this idealistic version that all the governments in the world can live in .gov. Now, it was an experiment. It wasn't meant to be the final answer. It was nothing like that. This was just a research project and folk were having fun. But as more and more researchers and academic networks joined in the fun, they kind of didn't want to constantly get into a conversation with the folk looking after those domains, John, to say, well, we want this and that in .edu. And the quick solution was to say, well, why don't you take your bit long debate, came out with two letters, two-letter country code, and go run it yourself. And various countries at the time went through that process. I know Australia did, and a gentleman by the name of Robert Elts at the University of Melbourne had the correspondence with John, and out came .au, and then it was kind of up to us to organise underneath it. And it happened in many other countries too. You kind of go, well, problem solved, right? At some point, the big people, the adults will come in and all this was just an experiment anyway, so let's just press on. But they didn't. And as we started to open up the internet to more and more uses, and as we moved away from academic, a whole bunch of sort of global digital entrepreneurs came along and said, I want my domain name in .com. Now, dear old .com was being funded at the time by the National Science Foundation of the US, and they were overwhelmed. Three men and their dog who were sitting there behind desks answering faxes, there wasn't enough hours in the day, and they certainly weren't servicing their core customer requirement with all these other people ganging in saying, I want this name, I want that name. 
there's a there's a real moment there where it's possible the right thing for people in the NSF to say was you can't have it, but no one in those days had a mind to say that kind of thing, and they also didn't have a mind to say, great, you're going to be a revenue stream that funds the rest of our activities. It was the rather middle ground. Let's keep going with the experiment behaviour, and we stepped into some deep waters, didn't we? Well, well, oddly enough, they did diverge to your second alternative. And the answer was negotiated between the National Science Foundation and I think the entity at the time was called Network Solutions, they just changed their name, was that they'd actually charge a fee. And the fee would be placed in a, for the good of the internet, beneficial fund. Yeah, this was not envisaged as making a lot of money. This wasn't seen as a profit centre. It was the cost recovery behaviour. We were young and innocent and full of... (laughs) I don't know what we're full of stupidity, I think, in retrospect, but we thought this was a good idea. $75 per name per year. That was the agreed upon fee, which is fair enough if it's only three domain names when it's a million. So to go back to an entry point you made about, is this something that arose because of supply side or is this something that arose because of us as users and consumers? When you said, I want my name in .com, You kind of identified a crystallized moment there, even though namespaces emerged, which aligned with email models of two-letter codes worldwide. When it came to services in an internet beyond email, people wanted to be in what they saw as the successful one. They wanted to be in .com. But more to the point, too, we had spent a lot of effort not being telephony, not dialing the extra number to ring up a phone in the US. There was no difference where the website was, where the service was. We were trying desperately hard to smush geography down to a point. And so why should I be jeff.au if I'm speaking in theory to a global audience? And I don't really wish to sort of say, well, I'm Australian, so there. I actually want to say, look, everyone, I'm me and you're you. And so we actually were trying to instill in one part this whole idea that the network was borderless, seamless, and almost a single point. And geography was kind of factored out, which was a a distinguishing factor. It didn't cost you any more to send your packets to America than send your packets to the next door. So it's kind of not surprising that the early wave of folk who started populating the internet looked at these, I call them borderless domain names, and .com was the one, and said, that's the name for me. And 75 bucks per year, it's actually very little. It's not a lot of money. Netflix costs more, way more. But who gave Network Solutions this license? Well, they were just making money for the NSF. So they weren't making money, were they? Until. You see, the problem is that In the US, and probably in most other countries, agencies just can't levy taxes on their own. There has to be a rule of law that says you are levying a tax because we need you to. You don't just invent it. Right. And so this was politely pointed out to the NSF, the National Science Foundation. Possibly lawyers were involved. And the poor old NSF ran for the hills. Oh, okay, we don't want that money. In fact, we want nothing to do with this. Network solutions, whatever. Keep the money. What about the good of the internet? Nah, it was a bad idea. We're not going to do that. So what do we do with the money? Well, <laughs> your good luck, I guess. 
off we go. My memory of the time is there was quite a lot of agitational outrage at the idea something that in principle had been good of the internet was moving into the profit space. This did not make people happy. This was an enormous amount of unhappiness that this kind of new gold mine had been discovered. And rather than being exploited for all the good of the internet, whatever, free services and so on, instead, one grubby little company was making all this money and the rest of us were on the other side of the fence paying. Why can't I play? Why can't I also reap the benefits of this new internet and make my fortune? Well, that was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure. And the resolution after some mucking around with alternate routes and trying to undermine the system and fragment it, which was just noisy and uncomfortable, the chosen idea was to actually introduce competition, not in the country code space, that's not the space we're talking about, but introduced competition in this space, in the non-aligned label space. And so we opened up a few more domain names to compete with .com, .biz, .info, or a few others. Now, they didn't exactly work, but there was a principle here, and the principle is very interesting. The principle is this is basically economists and economic theory in practice, that the way you pull apart a monopoly is by introducing competitive pressure. Yeah, and something here should be substitutable, which in names kind of makes sense. If there is .biz, I should be able to register my company in .biz or register in .com, and it shouldn't have any material difference in how my web works, in how my email works, in how anything works. There should be some substitutability. That's exactly right. And this was kind of, if you will, the theme of the emerging commercial internet as it went from research project, government-funded, into you're on your own, into a communications system that had to pay its own way. And the chosen mechanism was almost the antithesis of the telephone network. This was not a government-run substitute revenue-raising service, which is all the telephone companies became in the end. This was an open, competitive, market-based discipline that if you will, the market would attune itself to the needs of the users by simply by dint of competitive forces. This was capitalism at its best, said the Americans. And so up and down the internet, it was all about competition. It was all about trying to remove the barriers to entry and actually introducing competitive pressure. Now, in the early days of the expansion of the internet, People took this message to heart. Mike, Australia is not a big country, even today. 30 million odd people. At its heyday, we had a little over 650 internet service providers, replacing one telephone company. So folk really took this competitive thing to heart. But it wasn't just in the way you push packets and, and who does your packet pushing for you. We're talking about the DNS and the name infrastructure. Well, the theory was there were meant to be lots of people selling names, right? Now, we're now 30-odd years down the track. In theory, there are a bunch of folk selling domain names, selling services in the infrastructure of the DNS. And I suppose the question is to look back on where are we 
is this a strongly competitive market or a highly centralised one? Have we actually managed, despite our best in efforts, to recreate that nascent monopoly of 1995 or whenever it was, um, almost without even meaning to, passed the entire control of the internet's naming structure back to a handful of players? Is this strongly competitive or a vibrant, healthy market? Good question. Very good question. It has many interesting qualities, particularly when you think that a a namespace, a cohesive namespace, ultimately demands that somebody have the moving pen about what actually exists within any specific domain. So the competition here comes to points where it is, yeah, but I'm the one. It's selection of an entity to perform a role into a space that has to cohere in there is only one Jeff. Right. And let's look then at the role of everybody's friend ICANN, the Internet Corporation for the Assignment of Names and Numbers, what the IANA kind of morphed into back at the same time. And ICANN is not in charge. Well, some would argue that that's not true, but I actually think it itself thinks it's not in charge. It's not the rule maker that everyone must obey. It's actually trying desperately hard not to be that mixed success. But what it's trying to do instead is to create competitive forces to bear on this market so that no single player can run away with the internet's name system. So that there's always the checks and balances of other people also inhabiting this space. So if Jeff's registry sets up .jeff and charges a million trillion dollars a year for a domain name, well, there are many other folk who can set up names and charge a whole lot less. My dreams and fantasies of instant fortunes obviously don't work in that kind of environment. And so ICANN is meant to be, if you will, more than anything else, not a rule maker, but a competition enabler to introduce players and, and practices than actually try to counter the forces of centralization and monopoly and balance this space with competitive pressure. So there's a word you're very carefully not using here, Jeff, that begins with <laughs> begins with the letter R. And it's not regurgitator. <laughs> but there is a word here, isn't there? You mean regulator? I do. Yes, the rule setter, the rule maker. Because I don't think ICANN ever believed that in a non-treaty function, because there is no sort of centralised treaties that yeah. govern the internet internationally, in this market-based reality, what's the enforcement mechanism of someone who pretends to be a rule maker? And instantly, the emperor has no clothes is the riposte you make when rules are enabled. This doesn't work in this space. You can't make rules without authority. It, it has come back to its mutuality and its mutual consent to abide by some principle and some governing principles here. And ICANN's trying very hard to be the room people come to, to agree the mutuality and keeping an eye on the collection of hands on the single pen writing a zone. But at the same time, it doesn't have a big stick. It doesn't have a big stick. And the only thing that it can do is to introduce new players, introduce competition into this space 
to keep the incumbents, if you will, focused on what users need rather than what the incumbents would like, and to try and make sure that competitive pressures keep this market efficient and operating. So in some ways, it's the economist wet dream. This is the utopia of capitalism running everything. But I think there's a grain of truth to that attitude. And I must admit, if you look at sort of where most, particularly Western democracies have got to, America seems to have the most deep-rooted faith in the invisible hand of Adam Smith over and above many others. And this expression of ICANN that competition is the best answer to what was otherwise a deeply flawed and troublesome rulemaking problem is kind of where they ended up, okay? So if competition is meant to be the answer, the real question is, how's it going? And ICANN holds every year, COVID notwithstanding, what they call a DNS symposium, trying to bring together a number of players in the name industry to actually indulge in a couple of days of, of introspection with, I suppose you could call them research papers, but they're research and experience papers, for industry players to actually look at themselves and the industry and see what our common topics are, what our themes are, and where it's heading. A few years ago, there was a strong theme around using the DNS for denial of service attacks, because you can. Oops. There was one that was themed a lot about encryption, DNS over encrypted channels, because of this whole issue of pervasive surveillance and monitoring. But this year, the theme was centralization. And I found this kind of, wow, right topic, right time. Is the DNS as competitive as we'd like to think it is? Are there many, many, many players, and this is highly decentralized? Or are we all reliant on one company, maybe two? Is the DNS in somebody's pocket? Is it really just we're playing on someone else's turf? It's a great question. How much competition is enough competition is a really interesting question because it obviously isn't. Let's have 650 ISPs in an economy the size of Australia. And it might also be, yeah, but two isn't really a functional competitive market. That's a duopoly. So there's a magic number here, but nobody seems to want to say what it well, is. Let, let's start with that. We had this debate in Australia with airlines. One was too few. Oops. Three was one too many. The third went broke <laughs> twice. <laughs> and so we ended up with two because it was just the number that wasn't one and wasn't three. But in general, folk who do this work for a living do have some metrics. And if you consult the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, in a market of 30 million odd people, if any single entity holds more than 70% of that consumer market, that's deemed to be a problem. That's market dominance. And as soon as you get to that magic number, almost everything you do, if it gets challenged, has an immediate sort of fee of millions of dollars down and millions of dollars a day until you correct it or your lawyers manage to fight it off. So it's 70% in a economic environment like the yeah. one we both live in. It's abundantly clear it's not acceptable and action gets taken. But and you, you said you, earlier, if we think about things like advertising, 
Google are at 30%, but we nonetheless are pretty comfortable. They are a massively dominant player. So if you took that number 70% into the DNS context, are we there yet? Do we have that problem? Well, let's look at a few more metrics because while Australia is a wonderful place to live sometimes, um, <laughs> it's not the only metric out there. Oddly enough, in the UK, the definition of monopoly is at 25% market share, much lower. Wow. That's a hell of a gap from 75. Yeah, I know. And it's kind of, well, different countries, different rules. Maybe it's just because the UK is a bigger market that big doesn't need to be as big in terms of market share to still be enormous, nevertheless. So there's this idea of a single player metric, okay? Other economists have said, I'm going to mention an evil word right now, an ugly word, cartel. And they've observed that sometimes these markets don't centralise to one, but the three or four that are right in the middle are talking behind closed doors. And this is a metric of the three-firm concentration ratio, sometimes four, sometimes five, where you just add up the market rate, you know, percentages of the largest three, four, or five entities in the market. And as soon as you get above 50%, you've got a problem because a small number of players are just able to set the rules and conditions for everyone else. Right. They don't actually have to go into a smoke-filled room and agree what the rate will be. If they simply declare by statement, I am charging 25% of whatever as my scheduled rate to do this, magically, all four of them will agree to do the same thing. And suddenly, <laughs> it's a single price regime. What a surprise. Yay, they all agreed to do the same thing. And the last one is a weirder one, the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, otherwise known as HHI. Now, what you do here is you take the market share of each of the players and weight them by that same share and then add it all up. In application, it's really simple. You take the market share percentages, square them, and add them up. So 50% times 50%, 25%, you, know, you just add it all up. And if you get a number above 25%, the market's definitely on the path to hell. It's skewed, it's centralised, a small number of players totally dominate. If it's sort of 10%, that's moderately concentrated. And if it's sort of below that, it's kind of reasonable. So I did this across a weird metric, but it's just I happen to have some numbers, of the market share of petrol retailers in the United Kingdom. And Tesco is big. BP is big. Tesco, though, when I say big, is still only 16% of the total market. So it's kind of big, but not enormous. BP at 15%, Shell at 12%, etc. Now, no single retailer dominates the UK market, and no one's even above 25%. So I couldn't point the finger at, at those evil people at Shell going, you dominate, because they don't three or four or five firm concentration numbers. Interesting. The largest four are 56% of the market. So there's so a hint some, that they might be entering that territory of concern. Right. And the HHI index actually comes out at 11%, which is kind of, yeah, the big are big. And it is a problem, but I wouldn't lose sleep yet, but I would keep a look at that. So these are four different metrics about 
when is a market concentrated that a market regulator might say, whoa, this is unhealthy. We're not getting competition to the benefit of consumers. We're getting gouging, monopoly price rentals, and all the other evils that come with it. Okay. Armed with this, <laughs> this wonderful economic tool, let's push our attention to the DNS market. But I actually wanted to look at something, I suppose, more practical. Who told you the truth? You see, in the DNS, you say, I want to go to www.apnic.net. And you ask your local DNS library, tell me an IP address. And lo and behold, back comes an answer. Yeah, 10.0.0.1, who knows, an IP address. But I'm kind of curious, who told you that? Now, that's not something you'd normally actually know because answers don't come with, this is brought to you by virtue of the foo resolve or whatever. You actually need to look at this. But if, for example, Google's DNS is providing all the answers to everyone on the planet, that's not a very healthy situation. There might be lots of domain names out there, but if someone, someone is providing all the answers that everyone believes, you have a problem. You have an almighty problem. So we're in DNS. We're in the roles in DNS. We're not in the provisioning side, the competition around where you choose to have a name. We're in names exist, and there has to be a component of somebody as the authority. Yep, that's the one side. It's not where did you actually finally go to get what do you want your address to be? It's who told you that. It's the front half, the resolver. It's the, front half. It's the part where who do you ask to go and get that answer? Or to put it in a more pointed form, whom do you believe? And it's not even a choice. It's whom almost are you forced to believe? Who's telling you the answers that you're then acting upon? Because if they decided to, God forbid, lie, redirect, or otherwise muck around, we've all got a problem. So it's, it's a useful sort of thing to look at. And this is what I'd call concentration in the, it's a particular terminology here, and I don't really want to put people off by being too terminology laden, but it's called the recursive resolver market. The machine that sort of bridges between you and all those minute sources of information out there strides across this distributed database and says, www.apnic.net, it's, you know, 203.10, whatever, you know. It's the machine that makes it all together, that pulls it all together. And I'm interested to understand how many recursive resolvers dominate this market. Who resolves for you? So it wouldn't necessarily actually be a real single machine. It's more the question, who runs the machinery that answers this question for you? Because by now, we'd all be pretty comfortable. There isn't just one computer providing Google. There's a lot of them. And it isn't just a lot one of computer providing, I don't know, Australia. There's a lot of them. It's who controls that infrastructure. Right. And so we're kind of pitting two things against each other because there are well-known and highly publicized so-called open DNS resolvers that are not affiliated with any ISP. They're kind of out there and you can use them anytime you want. 
there was if a point you, in time when I even saw their addresses sprayed as graffiti on walls. In Turkey, yes. So Google's public DNS was one of the early, wasn't the first, by no means the first, but it was one of the big success stories quite early on in this saga, 8.8.8.8. And they're out there. Cloudflare came up with a service mimicking to some extent Google, but then they used 1.1.1.1 because if eight's good, one is so much better. Um, there's, IBM there's, have a managed role where they provide a variety of different ways of doing this as well. Right. Cisco went and bought OpenDNS and put it under their umbrella. There's the old 4.4.4.4 from level three. So there are a number of these so-called open DNS resolvers that are not tied to any particular service provider that are not part of anyone's infrastructure. They'll answer anybody. Right. And, and if you imagine that you do have one that's tied to your service provider, which you could rationally choose to do, we've now got six, seven potential good candidates out there. It's an interesting question. Is that enough that no single player is dominant in this space? Well, there are some service providers, naming no names, who said, I don't need to run my own DNS. I'll just send all the queries to Google's. All of a sudden, all of the queries from that particular ISP go to Google. The users can't see it. It's one level down. The DNS for an open protocol is remarkably opaque sometimes. And these kinds of actions, you really need to look hard to actually find them. And so here at APNIC Labs, we decided to actually go looking, to actually look at the market share of recursive resolvers to actually figure out if this is a highly centralized market or still one that I suppose you could say is strongly competitive, that there's still enough diversity out there that no single player is controlling everything. And in some ways, it wasn't hard to set up. Um, with a little bit of work using a technique, oddly enough, relied on Google in their ad machinery, we present about 30 million users a day with a particular unique domain name to try and resolve. And the only way it can be resolved is if they send a query back to one of our services, one of our authoritative points. And we're interested is who is asking on behalf of the user? Who is the user's agent to resolve that name? The last agent in whatever chain of recursive resolvers that winds up being the one that is going to ask you as an authority about the name that you asserted. So there might be other players in front, but it all comes down to what this player chooses to say right. when they give an answer. Who's the point of belief? Now, the DNS is a, a weird thing. No one pays to have their DNS queries resolved. So in some ways, you don't run a DNS open recursive resolver for fun and profit. There's information here that you're extracting as value because otherwise, yes. why would you be doing it? <laughs> yes. The business case, though, isn't that I can charge people to answer queries. It's more indirect than that and perhaps slightly more sinister. Who knows? But that's really not where I'm heading here. The issue is who's doing this answering? Now, there is one party that I've paid money to my internet service provider, my ISP. And in the general scheme of things, a few places in Africa notwithstanding, uh, the folk that I've paid my money to 
have also decided to provide me with a DNS resolver, a DNS service as part of the package. Right. But as you said, there are a number of them who've said, this is getting to be a hassle. Yeah, I might no. hand this off. But yes. So with, with those exceptions, and you know, we can see that when it happens, around two-thirds of the world just sit with the default. So Whatever my ISP does, before you, before you move names. past this, yeah. you aren't talking about a single economy measure here. This is a global experiment and a global measure you're doing. When you say there are some, you mean worldwide. You weren't just looking in one place. I meant that worldwide, around two thirds, use their internet service provider to resolve their names, right? But in each country, the profile does vary a fair deal. And that in some places, like, for example, well, where we are in, well, let's take India. That's a good example. 57% of people in India use the recursive resolver provided by their ISP. Interesting. Also in India, 14% of users in India use Google, which is around one in six, one in seven. It's a fair amount. I look at other countries and find kind of similar profiles. In Sweden, 90% of users use their ISP and only 5% of users in Sweden use Google and 2%, I think, use Cloudflare. So now, there is a certain amount of variance country by country. Now, if you're one of the digerati, if you're a skilled player and you know how to get to the right configuration panel in your phone or your laptop or your home computer or in your office, you can say who you want to use. But for most of us, the lived experience is, I don't play with those numbers and it's who I'm told to use. So there is a quality here that when you say this is what happens in India, you're also saying this is what most people are being told to use by the person who provisions their device onto the internet. It's what's being configured in. Right. And so most ISPs in most countries tend to run their own DNS. But in the Central African Republic, they don't. The ISPs in that country send all their queries to Google. Users may not see it, but it goes to Google. We can see it. Chad, Djibouti, Sierra Leone, all send their queries to Google. And it may be an entirely rational decision in terms of availability and reliability of service for them to do this. Expertise, service quality, there are a whole bunch of really good reasons why you want to send your queries to Google on behalf of providing your customers with a better service. That is true. But Google are not a charity. The DNS is highly valuable information. It's what you're about to do in the next millisecond. It's a profile of every single user's actions. And forking that information, that metadata, and sending it all off to someone who is not in your country, who is not part of your rule set, who is not accountable to you, is kind of weird. And it might be a superior service, but the cost in strategic terms, is certainly less than comforting. And so when you look at look something like Europe, where the headline number 
is, you know, without a, a bit of qualification, around about 20% of Europeans, highly qualified number, but around 20% have their queries being sent to Google. Little wonder that the good folk in the EU are kind of going, but that's not our Google, it's their Google. That's not our company, it's their com- country. That's not our service, it's their service. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Right. It's still very likely that the physical infrastructure serving those queries in Europe locates within the European economic zone, but the ultimate authority over how that service operates and decisions on what to do with the information gathered have no constraints set within that region. It's not subject it's configuration. to configuration. Right yeah, right. It's configuration, it's content, it's behavior is not actually determined by anyone other than Google, ultimately. Now, they would argue, we just say what's in the DNS. And today, that's true. Today. But it's up to Google. It's not up to everyone else. It's Google's call. It's Google's service. So when you kind of say, while two-thirds of users use the DNS resolution provided by their own ISP, equally, 14% of the world of the entire world, a little under a billion odd users or so, she's like less about five, six hundred million, send their queries through Google. It's the largest open recursive resolver by miles. So let's apply the is this a centralized market? Well, no, if you take the entire market. If you look at well, ISPs do most of the resolution, two-thirds. Is this dominant? Well, not really. The world's population smeared such as it is. No single player is dominant. When, you, you, go, take- when you go into individual economies and look at the balance of use of different ISPs, there are some economies that have massive single provider service well, deployment. Uruguay, for instance, Antel, the former national Monopoly Telco has something like 80% of the eyeballs from the way it looks right now. But there's no strict barrier to another provider coming into that space and offering service. It's just no one bothers because they don't see the benefit, the opportunity for profit. Right. So on a country-by-country basis, you might have subtly different answers. That's true, George. And, you know, like in Chad, there's only one left. But globally, it's not that centralised. It's actually because of that distribution across the world's ISPs, and we're not all customers of one ISP yet. No, I mean, I I have not bundled my telephony and my internet, and I am on several devices simultaneously. I don't have a single agency providing my DNS because I have at least two, but I do only have two. And there's a case for saying perhaps I've made unwise choices here. I don't know. I'm not sensing that you're saying there's a massive problem at scale worldwide here, but you haven't also said there's absolutely nothing to see. Well, what if I remove your ISP from the picture and just look at the market for open DNS resolution? The folk who aren't sort of part of the immediate, you're doing this because I'm paying you as an ISP, but everyone else. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a significant market. It's certainly 15, 16% of the world is serviced by these open DNS resolvers. So let's just look at that market. Google has 70% of that market. Clearly, even by the Australian standards, there's a problem. 
Because in that open DNS recursive resolver market, one player is just totally dominant. Four firm concentration rate between Google, Cloudflare, a Chinese entity called 114DNS and Cisco's open DNS, 91.6 market share, 91.6%. So Whoa. It, it's not yet a statement there is a cabal, but it's the statement the number of participants in this space is small enough that that kind of collusive behavior could emerge because there's it's, not a lot of variance in this room. It's heavily concentrated. The HHI index, don't forget Britain's petrol market was 11%, moderately concentrated, is 49%. So it's well north of a question mark where you'd say there's a concern here we need to think about. So Google's position is dominant, totally dominant. And if you sort of tried to pick apart why, for example, folk in the EU are somewhat concerned about this, it's because of the fact that a non-EU player in that particular area of the market, that's why I've got to qualify, it's just the open resolver area. But in that particular area, it is highly dominant. Now, let me also tie this in with, if you will, the digital health and digital well-being, the digital economy of various national markets. Who uses open resolvers? Now, this is interesting because it's not me and it's not you as individuals. We don't play with the buttons. But oddly enough, there's a whole bunch of enterprises who have brought in the various consultants to set up their, their infrastructure. And in general, you don't want to be dependent on your ISP du jour. You might want to change them. So they try and create standalone sort of configurations that will withstand changing providers, changing environments, and still work. And in the enterprise market, Open recursive resolvers feature very strongly. And so a huge amount of the business and enterprise environment, open resolvers have a much bigger presence, and Google has a totally dominant presence in that sector. So again, narrowing to a sector, but a sector we would <laughs> care about deeply, there is evidence of distortion and concentration. Right, right. Now, I could go into why Google is doing this, but I won't at this point. We're, we're diverging way away because I've actually got another part to talk all about. But what I wanted to point out is if competition is the backbone of the DNS recursive resolver space, it's failing that one player, for a variety of reasons, has actually managed to achieve a position of clear and unassailable dominance. And it's highly unlikely that any of the others will be able to get even close to it in the foreseeable future. There's, you know, no, you... there's no price barrier and there's no particular technology barrier and there's no regulatory or other imposed rule barrier that is making this happen. It's just what we have. Yeah, it's what we have. And, you know, the first player, the largest presence, Google, established itself and kind of has the incumbent advantage because it's the incumbent, you know, because it's an advantage, it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as distinct from I've harnessed more resources than you. It's kind of presence is everything and, and Google is certainly there. So that's the first part of the market, okay? Let's look at the second part because the DNS is always kind of more interesting than you think. Um, and this is the area of 
Who provides the authoritative answers weighted by query? So some domain names, um, obscureantelope.com, I don't know if it's a domain name or not, but I'm sure it gets one query a, a decade. Doesn't matter. Google.com probably matters a lot. Um, you know, whatever your favorite news channel, your bank, services that we use a lot, you know, are hammered in the DNS, whereas services we hardly use don't really count. So where do our DNS queries go? Who provides the authoritative answer weighted by query? Because that's kind of where, if you will, centrality really exists. If every one of us look up google.com all of the time, then whoever serves google.com, oh, gee whiz, it's Google, has this phenomenal centrality in the market of the namespace. It's in the middle. And, and so what we'd really like to know is not who's authoritative for domain names, where, where are these sort of bits of information in the DNS, but a more dynamic thing. If we weight them by query count, Who's the big player? Who's the big fish in the DNS market? So this is the other side of the deal. It's the answer side where the, the part we just talked about was the question side. Right. And it's the weight it by volume. Where are people looking for? What do people actually want to know about? Who's providing information that people use? Yes, that people use. Now, so we want to weight it by use. Now, from my insights into how Labs runs the advertising model for data collection, this isn't a mechanism that you can actually easily wire into that collection method, is it? This is a different kind of no, data. No, no. You know, I can't tell what names people ask for. I just can't with ads. You know, you can't uncover that. And while it would be great if everyone told me what names they're asking for, A, the privacy implications are so stunning, I don't really want to know. And B, the amount of information that would come to me, I'd be drowning within a picosecond. So that's not going to work. So we're looking for some point of access that has either a subsample or a random sample or a collection status that is going to give you an opportunity or give whoever's looking at this right. an opportunity to say, what was the distribution of queries? So pray tell us, Jeff, what is that method? Well, this was kind of, I suppose, a weird accident of some history, but it's no secret that Cloudflare desperately wanted the IP address 1.1.1.1 to use it as an open recursive resolver. And that actually had an address that APNIC had held to one side and said, look, this address is so toxic in the amount of traffic it, it actually attracts. It's unusable. So it's toxic and because it was included as a typical address in everybody's configuration everybody's document. Favorite, yes, everyone's favorite silly configuration test address, yeah. whatever. And, and it to this day, it continues to receive unbelievable amounts of traffic across web, across voice over IP, radio, file yeah. store, you name it. So Cloudflare came to us with an interesting research proposition that said, look, we want to use this address but we're happy to collaborate in research about DNS traffic based on the data that comes if we ran up an open resolver on this address. And after some thought, and it wasn't an easy thought because 
No one wants to be privy to secrets. See, I don't. And there's some care about exactly what's in this data and how much and, and so on. But certainly we see a profile of queries. Now, I can't see you. I don't know it's you. I don't want to know it's you. It's nothing about you. But we see a profile of queries and query names. And it might be a sample or it might be a collection. That doesn't really matter because it's doesn't. representative of behavior at scale of what right. people are looking at. And so Cloudflare have, according to our metrics, around about 3 4 5% of the recursive resolver market. And we've got now a window into the query names that are being fed into this recursive resolver, the names that people ask for. We've got so absolutely. We've got no basis to believe people would ask different questions because their provider told them to use Cloudflare from if their provider told them to use Google. So there's no inherent oh, but this isn't representative problem here because nobody actually knows without looking under the hood who is being asked the right. question. We don't think the sample's unusually biased. There's probably some degree of bias, yep. and it's without a second source of data, we can't tell how skewed it is. But you know, there is this suspicion that one recursive resolver for general traffic is much the same as any other recursive resolver to within maybe 10% enough, to within an, a reasonable approximation. So now we can actually do some interesting work because we have a set of query names. I'm going for www.amazon.com, for example. Now, I don't care what the name is. I care who is the service provider, the information that provider that says the IP address of that name is ultimately 10.0.0.1. I want to know who gave you that answer. So we've moved sort of one level behind to look at centrality as a problem. It's not the question, do Amazon get more requests than Google? It's the question, if people are going and looking at a name like Amazon or Google, where do they ultimately get told that from? And is that collapsing down? If Innocent Antelope is on the same platform as Amazon, and so is BP Petrol, and so is Telstra, and so is Barty Airtel, that single platform that gives those answers has a lot of influence on the world. A lot of influence and a lot of vulnerability. If you take it out, the world is dark. And it's kind of how central is the provision of this authoritative information? Who serves the answers that people ask for? And so it's, because yeah. you're scaling this by the amount of query, you also take account of that fact that there might be millions and millions of names all going to one place. But if they're only being looked at once every three weeks, their impact in the global state of affairs is low. But if that one name is being looked at by everybody worldwide, along with 10 other or 20 or 100 other things, and it's on one framework, that's really important. That's really important. And so this sort of query rating tries to sort of point out, are there nexus points of provision of information in the DNS? So I'm trying to move away from the name you're querying, don't care through to where's the point of authority that answers that query? Which service provider does that? So in kind of technical terms, what we do is we prune it back to the closest encompassing domain, look for the name servers, take the domain of the name servers 
and take its network number, its autonomous system number, and go add one to this service provider. It's an aggregation function, but it gets back to the owning authority, the central players who have the majority of traffic and the majority of names as a collected entity that they operate. So, yes, it's not who serves the most names, but who gets asked the most, who provides the most answers, who's critical. So hopefully that gives you a flavour of what we're trying to measure. And we're trying to understand in this, this measurement, is there centrality? And using those three different kind of concentration points, is this a problem? So at this point, we've reached you know, the time of the big reveal. And there are only a small number of players who completely dominate this space. How many um, are small? No, oh, 10. So to begin with, before you even think about their ranking, this is not a big field. 10 providers give us three quarters of the answers, just 10. The world's answers, everybody's answers, 10 providers are involved. The circle is remarkably small. But again, I'm weighting this by query volume. So now we can actually sort of find out who they are. And I'll go up backwards. A new entrant, US-based, NS1, has around 2.5% of the market share. (laughs) Oddly enough, people ask an awful lot of stupid names that have no answer. And around uh, 2.5% of the queries have no answer. So that's you know, they go to the root going, that's a crazy name. The and next one interesting. So the root is the circuit of providers of authoritative answer that are basically the last chance hotel. It really yeah. does mean nobody else is in a position to say, but the roots are going to say with absolute authority, this just that's doesn't exist. And that was the second one of the central behavior. That, that's rank nine. So rank eight. Oracle. Now, Oracle doesn't feature that much, but they have some very popular names. So it's more about this query rating that brings Oracle up. Oracle also had absorbed that service provider Dyn back from a few years ago. So it's the legacy of Dyn plus a few other contracts. Plus the fact that they are a provider of database services and corporate support facilities management, you name it. So they are massively involved in the provision of service to business at large. Yeah. So 3%. Apple is the next one. That's ranked seventh. Again, 3%. Why? Because Apple.com is amazingly popular. It's not that Apple's the world's biggest hoster. It's not. But Apple itself is a really, really big name. I I would imagine that in order to have an Apple phone or an Apple laptop, but let's basically say it's the phone and the, the iPads, those devices probably have to ask Apple some questions pretty much every day. At the bare minimum, they have to say, do you have an important update for me? And if you imagine volume scale worldwide, they're going to be checking in with Apple pretty much all the time. Constantly. It's not just, have you got updates, but it's a constant conversation back with home. Constant. So query rated, Apple is is quite high, 3%. Ultra DNS is the next. Now, this is one of your conventional hosters. Uh, Newstar went and bought them. If I have a domain name and I want it served and I want to pay someone money to do all this for me, Ultra DNS is around 3.7% of the market. But you just said that they were acquired by a company and the company you named is another player in the field of providing services in the DNS. Well, so 
the AS, it's hard to say whether it's Ultra DNS or Newstar, but I've mucked them, I've put them together and they're ranked six. Because that is another component of what you said takes place here. We start off yeah. with 600 ISPs in Australia. There really aren't 600 ISPs at <laughs> scale in Australia. Down, down to three. So same yeah. here. The number is coming down. They're all buying each other. Keep going so, through this list. Yeah, coming back up. Um, Microsoft, which we'd all written off years ago, is big still. That whole Azure, Microsoft Cloud, and Microsoft hosting, 4% of the market sits inside the Microsoft AS for the DNS. So Microsoft is big, ranked fifth. Ranked fourth is the first, I think, of the ones you'd expect, Akamai, because the cloud flow, the cloud providers dominate this world. And you'd think that the major ones, and Akamai is certainly a major player here, and it has around 4% of the query rating. So Akamai for hosting, yeah, it's big business for Akamai. And that's a worldwide service provider that many, many, many large corporate entertainment, government and other bodies use to get content distribution. So they're in a relationship with them to provide their web service. It's kind of rational that in order to do that, they're going to need to expose part of their DNS into the same entity. Akamai is part of that. And Akamai, they absorb DDoS attacks. They do a great job. I'm not they earn their 4% market share, but they have around 4% market share, ranked fourth. The next one is the first of the, oh, yeah, it's Google, and it jumps up by a quantum. It jumps up to 8.5% market share by query. And I think this is a combination of two things. If you happen to run Chrome or Android, there's an awful lot of conversations with Google.com, anything.google.com. It's just a huge amount of overuse of that that single term, plus Google host domain names. And between the two, they're the third biggest player in the DNS, where did this information come from, stakes. The next one is interesting because while Google dominates the open resolver market on the authoritative terms, it's kind of less so, and it comes behind Cloudflare, not in front. So Cloudflare has has 9% market share. And you kind of go, but but What's going on? And I think part of the issue is Cloudflare took the brave decision to loss lead with a free service. There's an awful lot of folk who are very attracted to free. And so for web hosting and DNS hosting, a lot of folk go to Cloudflare. But this is query rated. So interestingly, a lot of names that are heavily queried, as well as a lot of names, go to Cloudflare. And the Compilation of the two actually gives them that number two ranking, 9.3%. If you looked at market cap between Cloudflare and Google, it's a flea to an elephant. So it's quite interesting that although they have large presence worldwide and they have a large footprint of service delivery, it's a small number of people running a quite small number of boxes to provide that service, and yet they're taking twice as much as Google in this space. Well, not twice as much, 8.3% to 9.3%. Oh, right. Bigger. So it's a small increment, but nonetheless. It's a small increment, bigger. but nevertheless, it's big. It's significant. And I think it's almost the power of free, which gives them the bulk numbers that actually place them in this role. So Cloudflare are important in the DNS. You know, there's no doubting that. But the biggest one, the big reveal is actually Amazon. And in the same way that Google was head and shoulders above its competition in open recursive resolvers, Amazon have 35.7% of the query share of authoritative servers. 
Amazon are huge. And this probably points to AWS, doesn't it? Well, somewhere between Route 53 and AWS, and we haven't pulled the two apart in this particular piece of work, but on average, one in every three queries has its information served from an Amazon authoritative server. If Amazon died, the world would go very, very dark, very, very quickly by query volume. Amazon is right at the middle of this. So let's take our single entity, 35.7%. Fails the Australian standard, but the UK standard, whoa, boop, 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 it's a dominated market by Amazon. Four firm concentration ratio, Amazon, Cloudflare, Google, Akamai, 57.3%. Eyebrows raising. It's getting a bit awkward, isn't it? It's pretty big. The HHI index, anything over 10 is bad. This one sits at 15. It's concentrated. And in terms of, well, it's concentrated, it's moderately concentrated, we're all going to hell, this is terrible. It's around the moderate concentration point. So this is quite a distorted market. And if the original input condition was, we have a strong belief in this Western democratic economy model, that competition is the way we get rid of these problems, it's not sounding like a significant success story. So let me then take another comment here or put another comment into this conversation because I didn't actually talk about one thing yet that I'm going to do now, which is geopolitical centrality. You see, Cloudflare is global. People use it all over the world. And if the sources of the information that the people are querying all over the world are being provided by authoritative servers run by an entity from a single country, this is not a global internet. This is that country's internet, and we're just all guests. And obviously, it's the US and nobody else. The top 10, apart from the root system, is US. Amazon, Cloudflare, Google, Akamai, Microsoft, UltraDNS, Apple, Oracle, NS1. They're all US entities. Nobody else gets a look in. So for a regulatory, for governance, for process, legal intervention, LEA, all of the things that would crop up around necessary questions of how names work, we're looking at a single economic environment. When when we built the international telephone network and set up the treaties that sort of became encapsulated in the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, there was an extraordinary amount of effort to ensure that no single country dominated the world's communications network. The whole idea was that that would be a complete anathema to a global communication system, that we weren't beholden to anyone else. Each country had a PSA in this entire framework. And that, I suppose, even today is one of the still aspirations of the ITU. And I can't fault that aspiration. It's a fine aspiration because when countries don't get along, you need to communicate. And what you don't want is your communication system to be hijacked by one party or the other because that's just a disaster. Well, the way you've described this situation, we're a long way from having (laughs) any diversity of economic control over this part of the equation. A long way. So, yes, and yet we are a very, very long way. So when you look at folk in the EU have come up with this idea for a European DNS resolver, 
and are constantly trying to try and understand how they can reduce their dependency on foreign entities, i.e. US entities, for their critical infrastructure, their critical infrastructure. You kind of have some sympathy with the idea. You might quibble with their details, but you have to say, I appreciate your concern because I think it's valid. Because all of a sudden, when a bunch of foreigners who are throwing their allegiance elsewhere are running your entire digital infrastructure, you really do have a problem. And it's not a problem you can fix tomorrow, but you have a problem. I'd observe that because this goes to provisioning and because the function of which DNS should I use is provided from an ISP and because ISPs typically are bound by national regulatory frameworks, an outcome that the EU wants here is probably not a high bar if what they want to do is move the dial by numbers. They could instruct the mobile segment, for instance, to use diverse DNS provisioning. So for the part of the query arc, I can see how they can fix this. But for the part which you've just talked about, that it's AWS and four other entities that are based in the USA, I really don't see how so, this so moves. that's the rub. If all your fantastically European-funded Euro EU resolvers spend all their time asking Amazon and Cloudflare, US entities, you haven't actually won a damn thing. You haven't actually moved the needle at all. You've just spent a whole lot of money, but you're not feeling any better at the end of the day because you really haven't solved the problem. So I find all of this a fascinating insight into the new world of digital behemoths. And I seriously think that first mover advantage in the digital world is stunningly effective, just stunningly. And it's not that you've harnessed capital. It's not that you've harnessed a labor force. It's just you jumped first. And the first jumper gets almost all the prize and everyone else is isolated and marginalised. And we didn't have to construct a cartel and we didn't have to have collusive behaviour or nefarious intent. This just emerged from the nature of first mover advantage across two or three different segments that happened to have come back in, yeah, but it's all about the DNS. Yeah, it's all about the DNS. It's all about first movers. And quite frankly, it's all happening over there, not here for most values of here other than the US. Jeff, I've got to say that has been absolutely fascinating and leaves a <laughs> massive question mark over what are we going to do about it? It's one of these conversations that I think is hasn't got easy answers, but it's a conversation that we all need to have about what do we want from a public communication system? We want balance. We want fairness. We want impartiality. We want a whole bunch of things. And, and the real question is, is a deregulated market-based economy even capable of providing that? And this gets back to, well, were the folk who set this up years ago on the right track, but the government monopoly sort of answer got skewed one way? But is the reaction leave it all to markets, it'll be fine, completely skewed the other way. The, whatever the sort of the better answer is, it's in neither of those extremes. Mm, the hunt for the middle ground. 
I have as a feeling usual. that this is going to take quite a long time to work its way through, Jeff. Well, it's a lot to think about and it's a lot to kind of work through. But I find the combination of, of sort of doing these measurements and trying to understand, well, what are they really telling us to be truly fascinating? And I think these kinds of insights that tell us a lot about the way our infrastructure of, of this communication system is running is actually helpful for all of us to understand. Yes, I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, I hope listeners have enjoyed the path. There are write-ups all over the place, but at potteroo.net, you'll find my take on this, the centrality of the DNS. That's really great, Jeff. Thank you. And I hope people tune in again and listen to another one of these coming up. I'm sure that there's going to be more work in this space. So thank you. Thanks, George. Fun to do this. And uh, thank you, dear listener, if you've made it this far. I do appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings. Or, to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time. <laughs>